everybody, I'm Ashwin. I'm Raj. This is Blood Cancer Talks. Uh, this is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Today, we are excited to talk about clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance, seekers. We have an expert, Dr. Uma Boretti is an associate professor of medicine at the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Burate, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your time. Uh, before we can start, can you tell us about yourself and your clinical and research focus for our listeners? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on this podcast and for discussing this topic. I'm excited to be here. So I am an uh, associate professor in the division of hematology. I mostly focus, or I think I would say exclusively focus on myeloid malignancies. Like most of us, um, I see myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia patients. But in the last few years, I've really clinically and um, research-wise become interested in these clonal cytopenias of undetermined significance, as you just referenced, Ashwin because I truly believe that there's this area of um, early disease where we can potentially have an impact on our patient outcomes. I think all of us on this podcast know how challenging it is to take care of older, frailer patients that have these advanced myeloid malignancies. And I'm really excited to maybe intervene at a time when the disease is not as advanced, when the therapies are not potentially as toxic. Um, and I hope we'll, you know, be able to discuss some of that in this conversation. Thank you so much for that. And uh, with that, uh, we'll start with the case and you can walk us through how we would approach uh, this patient mm -hmm. and uh, we can discuss the data as we go. So this is a patient I saw in the clinic and modified a few patient mm -hmm. identifying factors. Mm -hmm. So she's a 78 year old female uh, with a past medical history of diabetes high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, and osteoarthritis, mm -hmm. presented for evaluation of long-standing normocytic anemia. Her hemoglobin was in the range of 9 to 11 over the past two years. Mm -hmm. Initially was evaluated by primary care physician. She was found to be iron deficient, but her anemia persisted despite iron repletion. Mm -hmm. um, and she's asymptomatic and she was sent for further evaluation to a hematologist um, given this long-standing normocytic anemia. At the time of evaluation by hematologist, her white count was 6.1, hemoglobin of 9.8 and the MCV was 98 mm -hmm. and a plated count of 233. So hematologist went ahead and did the bone marrow biopsy to evaluate for anemia, uh, which is long-standing, mm -hmm. which showed normal cellular marrow, so 30%, uh, with trilineage hematopoiesis. There is no increase in blast by morphology and flow cytometry. And the karyotype analysis showed normal female karyotype. And then myeloid NGS panel showed um, SF3B1 mutation with a variant allele frequency of 8%, and a DNMT3A mutation with a variant allele frequency of 26%. So with this information, Dr. Borate, can you walk us through what this case shows and how, how would you further work up this patient? 
So thank you. That this is a, a really interesting case and um, definitely not unusual for what many of us see in our clinics. I the first point I wanted to make is there are, you know, some of us who, and by some of us I mean in physicians in general who are not as diligent in maybe working up anemia in older patients because there's this, I guess, feeling that, you know, maybe it's just related to aging. And I think there is or was an entity that used to be characterized at, as ARCH, aging-related clonal hematopoiesis and, you know, consequent anemia. Um, but I, I want to point out that in general, just aging by itself should not make a patient anemic. So I think an important point for your listeners is if you do have a persistently anemic older patient, I think it definitely warrants a detailed investigation such as what you described. And I think you described well that the most common things need to be ruled out first. I mean, is this iron deficiency? It's probably unlikely given that her MCV is high, but you know, obviously that was something that you know, needed to be ruled out. And I think then other nutritional deficiencies in older patients whose diets may not be ideal, ruling out your typical B12 folate um, and so on. Um, copper is another one. There's a lot of over-the-counter zinc supplementation that happens, which depletes copper. So I think making sure that none of those things exist is important. And then I think um, if, if all causes, you know, are, are not revealing, then doing that bone marrow biopsy, as you described, I think is critical. And I think the findings that um, you presented in the bone marrow, where it looks like the patient has fairly preserved hematopoiesis, there doesn't seem to be a degree of dysplasia that is reaching the threshold for myelodysplastic syndrome, which as you know, is 10% or higher, but clearly the patient has a clonal process with two mutations, a low level SF3B1 and a higher level DNMT3A mutation makes this process by definition a clonal cytopenia. So I think my, in summary, I think the, the workup is, is very systematic. The only other thing I would add is maybe the other thing we would do in this um, situation is, and maybe this was obviously done and we might talk about it is an erythropoietin level, because that also plays a role. If the marrow had come back with MDS, then that would be something you might want to offer the patient. So I, I think, you know, the workup and the steps you described seem very appropriate and systematic. Um, and I think the concluding diagnosis is that she has these clonal, a clonal cytopenia of uncertain significance, given all the findings. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Borate, for that excellent overview. Um, you touched upon a lot of important points and thing you mentioned, something called ARCH, and you mentioned seekers, and you also mentioned CHIP briefly. Um, maybe for our listeners, can you distinct what, are the, what is ARCH, what is CHIP, and what is seekers? So I, I think we've tried to complicate this field. Um, I, I think all of us hematologists love our acronyms, whether it's, you know, MGUS or BLUS or now in the quick case, in this case, we have CHIP. So I'll just start off with CHIP because um, I think it's a really gray area between what is the realm of sort of hematology versus cardiology versus rheumatology. And CHIP essentially stands for clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. And by definition, CHIP is when you find a process of um, clonal hematopoiesis, so you find somatic clones or somatic mutations in a patient, or rather I should say a person, because technically they may not have any so-called disease, 
where their blood counts are completely normal. So they don't have cytopenias, they're asymptomatic, but if you sequence their blood, you find the mutations that you, you know, describe, most commonly being the DTA, DNMT3A, TET2, and ASXL1 mutations. Um, and the, the consequence of this is now being well described over the last, I would say, you know, five to seven years, where having this entity, and it gets more and more common as we age. So about 10% of people over the age of 70 will have some degree of chip. Um, the consequence of this is really in other organ systems, not so much progression to a hemalignancy, which there is an increased risk of, but the more relevant risk is increased morbidity and mortality from heart disease. So they're, you know, almost four times more likely to have an event um, like an MI or a stroke, which obviously affects their overall survival. And this has been really well described in multiple papers. And so I think that's where CHIP is relevant for us as physicians. In terms of CECAS, this is when you have a patient like the one you described that is presenting with one or more cytopenias. These have to persist for at least four months or more. And the workup, as you described, again, is unrevealing for other causes than a bone marrow biopsy is performed. And you do see in the bone marrow, or it can also be in the blood, where they have these clones um, and these mutations that are detectable with a variant allele frequency of 2% or higher. And we can talk about why 2%, but they don't have dysplasia to the point where it can be considered MDS. So that 10% or higher dysplasia in one or more cell lines is not present. And that's the definition of CCUS, which is clonal cytopenias of undetermined significance. So I think these are the two entities that I'm sure we'll talk about the most. There's an entity called ICUS, which is um, idiopathic cytopenias of uncertain significance, where you have these cytopenias, the bone marrow doesn't show MDS, but you really can't find these clones that we just described. Um, and this entity is a little bit more amorphous, but in general, the consensus is these patients have a very low chance of something happening in the sense of, you know, myeloid malignancy transformation in the future. And lately, uh, we also been hearing a term called CMAS, clonal <laughs> monocytosis of undetermined significance and clonal cytosis of undetermined significance as well. I'm not sure about these different terminologies. Maybe probably you can allude more into it. About so about I think the clonal monocytosis, so the CMUS, clonal monocytosis of uncertain significance, I think out of everything, I, I feel like that is clinically relevant because you do have these very diligent, you know, primary care physicians and other physicians who notice that the patient has had elevated monocytes for a while. And it's not uncommon that um, we get ref referrals for workup because they have worked up a lot of things and they haven't noticed, um, they haven't found a cause and the patient has these complaints. Like sometimes they have these rashes, sometimes they have these autoimmune type symptoms. And then when you work these patients up, they do have clonal hematopoiesis. So again, you know, the overlap between CMML and MDS mutations is very broad. So ASXL1, you know, TET2, SETBP1. And so you have these patients with monocytosis, again, not reaching the level of the definition of CMML, but they have these clones. And I think more and more research, again, in its infancy is showing that these patients actually have a pretty high chance of progressing to CMML. Um, and so... Again, I'm not sure clinically what you can 
do actionably. We can talk about that a little bit more. But clearly, these entities are now being recognized and these diagnoses are being given to patients. Um, and I, so I think it's important for us to be aware of them. And hopefully, as the field evolves, we'll be able to you know, tell our patients a little bit more about what this means. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is you mentioned that in the definition of seekers and CHIP, the inclusion of somatic mutation. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we should also include mosaic chromos chromosomal alterations in the definition of CHIP and seekers? Because right now more and more research shows that even mosaic chromosomal alterations are very common based on the some of the data from the UK Biobank as well as other large biobank data. I think that it's fair game to include them. I think it's easier to understand because of all the previous research how gene mutations, somatic gene mutations and variant allele frequencies kind of correlate with disease evolution, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, in a few minutes. But I think it's less clear about what you mentioned, this entity of you know somatic mosaicism and how that contributes to disease evolution. But I think it is absolutely fair game. We know that these... Um, mutations or, or I guess rearrangements or chromosomal abnormalities clearly impact, you know, your stem cells and maybe provide a clonal advantage. So I think there definitely needs to be a lot more discussion. Um, as you know, we just had a very big revised classification of um, all, all myeloid lymphoid and malignancies and so on. So I think as as the literature evolves and as we understand more, I'm sure that will be hopefully incorporated in the future. Uh, and the reason why I bring this up is I have an interesting patient in my clinic where mm -hmm. he had a, a bone marrow biopsy done because of his long-standing history of ITP and the platelet count were not getting back to normal range despite receiving adequate therapy. And he had a bone marrow biopsy done uh, by outside physician and which showed that he has a uh, translocation 922 in oh. one chromosome out of the 20 chromosomes they analyzed in the karyotype hmm. and and no evidence of CML by morphology and blood counts are completely normal and he was referred to me uh, for this translocation 922 but it was only in one chromosome and no, no other chromosomes and I've been just monitoring him for the past one year and his blood counts are completely normal. So I'm not sure how to address this because yeah. I, I think we are seeing more and more of these referrals where, you know, based on yeah. the bone marrow biopsy they get, they have this karyotype abnormalities and we don't know what to do with them. I, I don't disagree. I think this is a fascinating case and I pretty much agree. I mean, I agree 100% with what you're doing and the, the uncertainty behind this. And I think other than monitoring the patient, I really don't think there is anything you could do. But to your point, you know, what can we as a community of people that are researching this, you know, how can we pool our data together and describe these entities better to help clinical management? I think that's critical. Yeah. yeah. And you also briefly mentioned about the another point is the calling the variantal frequency of 2%. Why 2%? So, I mean, I did a little bit of digging into this and talked to people who, you know, came up with these terms or made these definitions. And the consensus seems to be at the time these entities were defined, 
our NGS platforms and technologies really were accurately varying calling down to 2%. Below that, it was you know, under the range of accurate specificity and sensitivity of the particular test and, and basically a limitation of the technology. So they didn't feel comfortable calling out a varying allele frequency mutation of let's say 0.5% or 1%. They, they felt like this was you know, crossing that that line between being certain that this is measurable, pathogenic, and so on. And so that's why 2% was chosen. Since then, our technology has evolved, the sensitivities have evolved, and I think now um, people are more comfortable calling lower variant early frequencies down to 0.5 and sometimes even lower, the so-called microchip. <laughs> um, and again, you know, clinical value or clinical significance of this is, I think, very, very unknown. But I think it would, it would be interesting to imagine if you have two or three variants under that 2%, maybe one of them is TP53, how do they cooperate and lead to clonal evolution, clonal pressure, maybe in the context of a patient receiving chemotherapy to, you know, five years down the line, the patient gets diagnosed with a myeloid malignancy. So the answer is there's so much more we need to understand and learn, I think, but we won't be able to do that until our technology sort of keeps pace, our definitions keep pace. And then um, the final question is, well, we know all of this, but how long until it's clinically actionable and relevant? Sounds good. So uh, when you see a patient with uh, seekers, Dr. Barati, like what do you tell the patient? And, you know, how do you address the, you know, hematological as well as cardiovascular uh, consequences of it um, when you first see a patient? So I feel like in my fellowship and even in my first few years of faculty, I saw a lot of MGUS patients. <laughs> so I felt like I, I had a lot of, practice in telling patients they have this abnormality that is clearly clonal, which tells us that there are certain cells in their body that are producing, you know, these that have these mutations in, the, in MGUS that are producing this protein. But in, in the case of CECAS, there's a group of cells in their blood and their bone marrow that carry these mutations that clearly over time have the potential of becoming full-blown blood cancer is the way I put it. But right now, what they are doing is causing blood counts to be low. And what we don't know is how rapidly or how slowly this process will change on us. That's sort of the terminology I use to, with patients. And I tell them that there are certain things we do know. We do know that the number of these mutations influences how quickly things will progress. If they have two or more actually more than one, we know that this process has a potential to evolve faster. If the amount of the clone, the variant frequency is higher than, you know, 10%, we know that the chances of this evolving to a full-blown myeloid malignancy is higher. And then to your other point, I always, always tell them that the biggest risk of something happening to them in the near future is cardiovascular, is to do with their heart, to do with their blood vessels, to do with the history of stroke. And so I always say, you know, don't not, don't not worry about the blood cancer part, but let me sort of monitor and handle that. What you have control over, the patient has control over is factors like diet and exercise and reducing their lipid um, you know, optimizing their lipid profile, taking their statins, seeing their cardiologist. 
So I try to empower the patient as much as possible in things that they can control in the immediate future and then talk about what is a reasonable level of follow-up and monitoring um, for CCUS patients as well. Do we have uh, any data on what is the absolute risk of transformation to AML in CCUS? Like I know Ashwin will go over in details over the risk course and next question, but uh, just overall, like, you know, in, in all commerce, for example. So I don't think we have great data. And I, I know um, Ashwin will get into this a little bit, but I think the data is only as good as the source of the data. And as you can imagine, you know, we have so many different cohorts of patients or people we study. We have people out in the community that we study, and we'll talk about the UK Biobank in a second, that are relatively healthy, going about their lives and have volunteered their blood for research, but really are not sick. They take care of themselves, you know, they exercise. And then you have the patients that actually come to us because they have been identified to have low blood counts. They sometimes are symptomatic. Sometimes they've even needed transfusions a couple of times. Um, or they've had chemotherapy for another cancer and the oncologist is like, oh my God, these counts don't recover before the next cycle. Something's going on. This is not normal. Let's send them to the hematologist. Very different population. Um, if you identify CCUS in those patients, then you know a healthy group of patients that incidentally has a clone identified in their blood. So I think we need to do more as a community to come together and collect these large cohorts. And I know your institution at Vanderbilt and Ashwin is leading that effort um, with Dr. Savona. So I think having a lot more population-based information in different sets of groups of people or patients that come to us versus are out in the community is going to be very impactful. And I think the myeloma world has shown us the way. You know, I think the conversation with an MGUS patient now is much more clear, the nuances are much better worked out because they've had these giant studies like Promise and others that have teased out these risk of progression to smoldering myeloma myeloma much better than we are doing with, with CCAS and CHIP and so on. So I think this is a nice segue to talk about the risk of uh, uh, progression to myeloid neoplasm. Um, I think we have two seminal publications. One was from the European group um, where they uh, included CCUS patients and when they studied the progression to myeloid neoplasms, I think three variables kind of sticked out. One is the number of mutations, as you said, and the type of mutations as well as the clone size matters uh, in the risk of transformation to myeloid neoplasm. And more recently, the publications from Weeks et al. in uh, New England Journal of Medicine Evidence, a couple of weeks ago, which along with these three factors, it also um, showed that red cell size is uh, reflected by uh, mean cell volume and uh, RDW um, also adds into the uh, risk of progression to myeloid neoplasms. So Dr. Varde, with these two publications, do you think uh, we address a common problem we see in the clinical practices, how to best advise cytopenic patients of the risk of transforming to myeloid neoplasms? I think these two publications, as you said, have really helped. Um, I think helped us counsel our patients a lot better because as you mentioned, I actually do take into account all the factors that those papers mention. So when I see a CCUS patient, let's take the case you presented, you know, in the beginning of this conversation, for example, one of the things that this 
lady had was she had, you know, a, a, her MCV was high. I don't necessarily think we talked about RDW, but, you know, having a larger red blood cell size or more variation in the red blood cell size has clearly been correlated with an increased risk of progression. So that's one thing you can discuss with her. The second thing is you can talk about the fact that she has more than one mutation. And the third thing is, like you said, the type of mutation. And we know that spliceosome mutations, particularly SF3B1, are at the highest risk of progression to a myeloid malignancy. So I think just by virtue of those three things that have been described in both these papers, you do have a way to communicate to this patient that, you know, right now you don't have a myeloid malignancy, but given all of these things, I'm going to watch you really carefully because this may be something we encounter in the future. And we're going to talk about some options of potentially how that, you know, that could be treated in the future. So I think I have taken from both papers that they're two very different cohorts. Like we mentioned, the UK Biobank is a large group of healthy individuals that have been followed over time and they don't have a lot of events. Um, they don't, you know, have a lot of um, disease or morbidity, comorbidities going in. They're mostly white, as opposed to the Galley paper, which is patients coming to our clinic seeking attention for cytopenia. It's just very different population. And to um, Raj's point, if you look at the risk of transformation to myeloid malignancy, very different in both cohorts. You know, in one cohort, depending on what their risk is, whether they're classified as low risk or high risk, the risk of transformation is maybe, you know, 15%. Um, and if you look at the Galley paper, the high risk risk of the high risk group, the risk of transformation, you know, is almost like 80%. So you're talking again, different patient groups, but we're now learning factors that can go into the nuanced discussion that you're just talking about and how to take care of these patients and how to decide to follow up. Uh, with the publication of the uh, manuscript in uh, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, which showed use the UK Biobank data, and they have a right now where a, a, a app uh, with we can plug in the numbers and it will spit out a score. Are you using uh, that in all your patients in the clinic? So or? I did. I did. I don't use the app, but what I did was I pulled in. Um, the information from the publication using a smart phase in Epic. <laughs> so I have it right in front of me when I'm doing the patient note and I can kind of see what, you know, what, what that looks like. I will say though, I am taking it with a grain of salt because I'll give you an example, just like you presented a patient case. I had a patient referred to me by an um, GYN Ong colleague. This is a patient who has had a recurrent ovarian cancer and has had multiple lines of therapy, including, you know, taxanes. And I think it was, I can't remember if it was cisplatin or carboplatinum, but platinums um, and PARP inhibitors and continued to be on and off cytopenic. And the GYN on colleague had read the data on what can happen if you give a PARP inhibitor to a patient with a pre-existing TP53 or PPM1D clone. And so she wanted to know if that was something her patient had because she was planning to continue a PARP inhibitor for a long period of time, not completely knowing, you know, what, what period of time is good for this patient because that's data that's evolving in their field as well. 
So I worked up the patient. We did a bone marrow. She did not have MDS, but she actually had a PPM1D mutation. And so then we are left with the question, and you can plug in the numbers in the CHRS score, but it, I think it doesn't totally accurately reflect the risk of this particular patient, right? Because this is that was informed by a very large, healthy group of patients, but this patient's situation is very different. And so if I plug in the score, it says the lifetime risk of developing MDS is, you know, 1%, maybe. So whether if, if that's what you tell the GYN on colleague, she's going to say, well, of course, I'm going to continue the PARP inhibitor. And maybe that is the right answer. But there's also the data from, you know, Kelly Bolton and colleagues, which show that these patients actually are much higher risk of progressing to MDS or AML, but we don't really know the exact percentage. So it's hard to make patient per patient decisions using the CHRS score without taking into account all the other data as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that definitely makes sense. I think you bring up a very important point that, yes, all these score systems are there, but they don't adequately capture the nuances we see in the clinic. You uh, eloquently uh, said before that we need to have large data sets and multi-institution collaborations. And thank you so much for leading for some of the efforts as well to having a good uh, uh, consortium uh, in, the, in the seeker space so that we can have the data uh, to better risk stratify these patients. We also increasingly see these referrals where um, some of the patients are getting screened by the tempers or other mm -hmm. uh, sequencing um, done by solid tumor colleagues and they were found to have this germline variants. Yep. And uh, we have seen some data from uh, Kelly Bolton et al. Uh, using the UK Biobank that this germline variants also predispose you to development of seekers as well as CHEP and may also have a create a, uh, environment where the, the CHEP clone can grow. Maybe should we screen for this germline variants in patients with CHIP so that we can better assess the uh, risk? I am actually struggling with that, Ashwin, I'll tell you, because it then starts becoming sort of a risk-benefit expense issue with patients. Um, obviously, these tests are expensive. You're sort of going down more and more rabbit holes. Um, and I actually am very interested in, you know, learning more from Kelly Bolton and others research on how practical is it to do this? Do we do it for every patient that comes in or do we really focus on family history and say, wow, you have a family history of several cancers, not just blood cancers. We really need to potentially go down the germline testing route. Um, I think there's great data from Alex Bick and Sid Jess while talking about a particular SNP, which, you know, presence or absence of the SNP really determines if having, you know, CHIP or, or maybe even CECAS will actually lead to, you know, worse things down the road, or maybe it's protective um, if you have, you know, a certain, um, a, a certain type of SNP. So I think the field is still evolving. I do think as more and more of these data get published and come out, we will be able to do a better job of saying, you know what, based on the patient's history, based on the, this data, based on this type of chip that we're seeing, we really strongly recommend some germline testing. But I am not doing that on a routine basis in these patients. All right. 
So uh, now a practical question for clinicians. So, you know, patients diagnosed, how should they be followed? I know that some centers have chip clinics, dedicated clinics. So should you should you have dedicated clinics for following these patients or should they be followed by, you know, the local hematologist or primary care doctor? How do you do it in your practice? So I think I have um, a bias in that I have a clinic like that where we follow these patients. It's called the HALT clinic. It stands for hematological abnormalities at risk of leukemic transformation. And the reason I think these clinics are important is it's the only real way to advance the field, in my opinion, because if you don't see these patients on a routine basis, if you don't, you know, collect samples and collaborate with your lab and basic science colleagues, I'm not sure we'll be able to make progress in understanding, you know, what CHIP patients or CCAS patients actually evolve? What are the other factors to the point that you mentioned, you know, are cardiovascular outcomes playing a big role? We're all focusing on, you know, evolution to blood cancer, but we collaborate with our cardio-oncology colleagues to try to optimize these cardiac factors. And then, you know, what other questions should we be addressing? The only way to do that is for us to have dedicated clinics, hopefully across the country and pool all our data and samples together. So I think that is a huge advantage of having these clinics. Obviously, I think, you know, you take into account patient preference. You know, we, you practice in, you know, Tennessee, we practice in Ohio. There's a lot of rural um, population around us. It's not easy for them to travel, you know, three and four hours for us to, you know, observe them or, you know, tell them that they're contributing to research. So I think it, you, we always explain that to the patients and we see, you know, whether they would be willing to come back. And I will say most patients actually do want to come back. They do want to contribute to science. They do want to be involved in research in the field. Um, and so we've had a lot of success in having dedicated clinics. Um, and, and I think, again, we get data that will then inform the science and the clinical management. So I'm in favor of this. I know for some people, it's a little bit of an overkill because these patients are sort of the worried well, as they call them. Um, so I think it's a very individual preference. Yeah, I think definitely for research, that's the only way to advance the field. I mean, maybe it's not ready for prime time for clinical practice all across the board, but for the research institution, definitely. Um, and another common population, you know, that we see even in actually some of our myeloma patients is, you know, those who have received prior cytotoxic chemotherapy and are at risk of developing therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. And, you know, they may harbor some mutations for CHIP or CECUS. So uh, what is the current evidence for prevalence of CECUS in this population? And what are its clinical implications, you know, long-term regarding transformation to MDS-AML? So that is a great question. And I think the biggest paper that was published on this was again by Kelly Bolton and colleagues in Nature Medicine. And I think what she described was the prevalence really depended on prior cancer chemotherapy. So it was very different if they got, you know, for example, platinums, taxol, anthracyclines, as opposed to radiation, as opposed to a combination of all of these, as opposed to, you know, melphalan for an auto stem cell transplant and maintenance lenalidomide. And, you know, so it was, I think there isn't a percentage that you can give saying, oh, if you get this chemotherapy, this is your chance of developing CCAS or myeloid neoplasm. It's very different for myeloma patients versus breast cancer versus, you know, other patients, depending on the type of chemotherapy they get. We do see a lot of these patients that are referred to us. And I think those are the ones I'm honestly the most worried about because I think, 
you know, you have a pre-existing clone and now it's being put under pressure and there's a, the, the soil, so as to say, is much more fertile for it to evolve. Um, and I think that's where, to your point about what is ready for clinical prime time. And I think those are the patients prime time clinically that we need to think of strategies to potentially intervene in collaboration with our medical oncology colleagues and, and decide what can we do to minimize their risk of a secondary myeloneoplasm? Because all of us who've taken care of secondary MDS or AML emerging from a therapy-related, um, you know, previous cancer, it, that those patients do so poorly. I think we really should be focusing on our efforts for preventing that. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I think this is a nice segue to talk about your efforts uh, leading the cl uh, investigator-initiated clinical trial. Um, in this space, uh, the IMPACT study, uh, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase two multi-center study of inflammation modification of canakinumab to prevent leukemic progression of seekers. Can you talk to us more about this clinical trial and why did you choose canakinumab? So um, thank you for that. I I was very interested as um, so much data Ashwin and Raj has come out about inflammation and its role in facilitating clonal progression, um, especially in TET2 mutations, but you know, there's more data that maybe other mutations contribute to this as well. And sort of having this activated inflammasome, I mean, there's there's mice data, there's, you know, monkey data, there's human cell data that shows you have these mutations and you put them in this inflammatory rich milieu, the chances of sort of this vicious cycle of clonal expansion and then acquiring mutations and progression to myeloid malignancies is very enriched. So that was my motivation of, you know, choosing that pathway as a target. And my second motivation was my patients. I mean, for all of us that take care of MDS patients, the number of patients that have coexisting inflammatory diseases is quite high. We're always talking to the rheumatologists, you know, should we continue the TNF beta therapy or should we continue methotrexate now that they have MDS? So I know I knew clinically this was an important issue. Um, and then lastly, having a drug like canicunumab, which is an IL-1 beta antibody, a lot of safety data has been looked at across thousands of patients, including patients without blood cancers in the large Canto study. It's given sub-Q, it's given once every three months. So for a patient that isn't actually quote unquote, diagnosed with a myeloid malignancy to ask them to come more often than that to intervene with a drug that potentially could do more harm than good, I don't think would have been appropriate. So canicunumab kind of hit all the check marks in being feasible to have an intervention. IL-1 beta is a very critical player in the inflammasome and has been shown to really sort of facilitate progression of clones to myeloid malignancy. So the data was really solid. And so all of these factors really led me to choose this as a target and to design the study. I think the, the design of the study where it's a randomized placebo-controlled study was really dictated by a lot of conversations with the regulatory agencies that felt strongly that it needed to be done this way to minimize bias because you know, like, like you guys have been discussing, we don't know what to do with these patients. So, you know, at Vanderbilt, we may do something else. At OSU, we may do something else. So they really wanted a adequate 
rigorous study to show one, we weren't doing harm. There's an interim analysis that stops the study if we are doing harm. And two, that um, we minimize bias as much as possible with the study design. Talking about the study design, um, what are the group of patients you're targeting in this clinical trial? So we are trying to target based on everything we just talked about, the highest risk of patients that could progress to MDS or AML. And by that, I mean, everybody has to have one or more mutations. Um, they have to have a high variant allele frequency of mutations. Um, it has to be more than 10%. They have to have cytopenias um, that have been come, brought to medical attention. Essentially, a patient referred to you for those cytopenias. Um, so I think those are sort of the big things that we look for because we don't want to treat patients with small clones that we think the risk of progression is going to be very low in the first place. So I think we're trying to focus on those patients. And if you talk, you know, look at the CHRS score on these patients or the galley paper, these are definitely patients that fall into that, you know, high risk of progression. Um, so that's our target. We obviously do a baseline bone marrow biopsy to make sure they actually don't have MDS to begin with. And then the endpoint of the trial is the development of a myeloid malignancy. So I think the trial is designed to really understand progression and whether interfering with the IL-1 beta inflammatory pathway can somehow impact this progression. How long is the duration of the canakinumab in the experimental arm? Two years. It's okay. given for two years. And then it's a fixed duration. It's yeah. a fixed duration. I mean, we did write into the protocol if there was really strong evidence of benefit and that patients wanted to continue for longer, there was we could have that discussion. But I think then we come up against, you know, drug supply, expense, um, you know, inhibiting IL-1 beta is not without its risk, right? You could have a risk of increased infection and we don't know what that signal will look like until we do the study. And if we don't want to have patients developing, you know, serious infections and so on and so forth on the study. So far, nothing. We've enrolled four patients. Um, the, the first patient actually got a second dose where obviously it's a double blind placebo controlled study. So I don't know what the patient is getting, um, but all of our patients are older. Um, nobody has knock on wood had any side effects or infections so far. It's early in the study though. So we'll keep you updated. Yeah. I think some of some really good points about the study are number one, it's placebo controlled and fixed duration and low treatment burden, you know, low frequency right. of treatment. You know, we are, as you know, we are struggling in, for example, smoldering myeloma uh, right. studies. A lot of single arm studies are being done. And, you know, those right. sometimes can be a little bit challenging to know the Interpret. benefit. Yeah, yep. exactly. Along with the uh, risk of leukemic progression, uh, is there any other endpoints you're looking for? Like, for example, like cardiovascular mortality as well. Yeah, thank you for that, Ashwin. So we are looking at cardiovascular endpoints. A lot of our patients are older. Um, so that's really important to us. And as you pointed out, some of the biggest benefits of the anti-inflammatory IL-1 beta inhibition with canakinumab has been cardiovascular. So we're looking at that. We're also looking at um, cytopenia improvement, because honestly, like the reason these patients came to clinical attention was the cytopenia. So we want to see if patients actually improve their cytopenias. So that's another important secondary endpoint that we're looking at. We're looking at variant allele frequency and clone size. None of us know if it matters. We know that if you're 10% or higher and the higher the clone, the more your risk of development of AML or MDS. So 
would an anti-inflammatory approach, for example, decrease the clone size? So that's another thing we're looking at with serial biopsies. So I think those are some of the things that, you know, I think this is sort of the first of hopefully many studies to follow, but it's not a perfect study by any means. It may not really, you know, it, it, it may or may not achieve its endpoint, but I think it will give us a lot of important information, one, on conducting a study in this population, and two, the, the information that we get from patients and samples will really help us understand the natural history of, of this process. Yeah, I think this is a very important study, I think, which could potentially um, uh, dictate management for these patients. And as you know, we are also participating in the study and uh, we look forward to enrolling our first patient uh, uh, on the protocol very soon. Thank you so much. And along with this, any other exciting clinical trials in this space you are eagerly awaiting results of? So as, as you know, we there's a couple of studies looking at targeted approaches. Um, so there's the IDH1 and the IDH2 CICA studies. It's led by Kelly Bolton and Eitan Stein looking at IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors in this approach. They're designed as pilot studies with the primary endpoint of um, variant allele frequency reduction and cytopenia improvement. Those are the main focuses of these studies. Um, so I think those would be interesting to see, you know, one with in terms of, you know, can patients tolerate these therapies? Can it improve cytopenias? And you know, what is the long-term impact of this? Because obviously these were designed for AML. Um, I think um, Dr. Patnaik and um, Zoe Shi have presented their vitamin C study where they give high dose vitamin C in TET2 mutated patients um, and to see the impact of the this therapy on TED2 clones. There are other studies looking at oral vitamin C and metformin um, in these patients to see if that could impact sort of this story of inflammation, clonal expansion, and so on. So I think there's a lot of movement in this space. Um, none of us know if any of these are disease modifying, right? Because, you know, again, with MGAS smoldering myeloma, the, the goal of any of these interventions is can you modify disease progression and, and not have the patient develop a disease that then causes so much morbidity and mortality, it's very hard to treat in, in our older patients. And so to me, that's my motivation. I don't want to round on the leukemia service, you know, taking care of 85 year olds who are so deconditioned from having leukemia, they, they can't tolerate even, you know, our less intensive therapies and their survival is terrible. So I think that is the motivation for focusing in this space, I think, for most of us, if not all of us. Um, but as all of you mentioned, the caveats are tremendous. You know, can, are you going to cause more harm than good? Are you going to do something? And then maybe you're stopping progression to MDS, but is that really clinically meaningful? Because maybe they just needed ESAs like the lady you presented. Maybe if she develops MDS, it may not be that bad. You may be able to treat her with ESAs. The question is, you know, would it be the same if you develop, you know, high-grade MDS or AML? That's a whole nother um, story. So I think lots of unanswered questions, but I think it's exciting that we have the opportunity to study these, um, these patients or this population and maybe have an impact on them in the future. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time and educating us and our listeners um, about uh, your efforts in, in this space. And uh, we look forward to having you again on our podcast uh, in very uh, near future to talk about uh, the results of your clinical trial. 
Thank you for having me. And this is a great podcast. It's amazing that you guys have taken out the time to do this for learners and listeners. I, I enjoyed being on it. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.